Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information, or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Good morning. My name is Luis Rivas, and I have the privilege of serving as a student minister at St. Michael's Episcopal Church. This is the second episode of our limited podcast series talking about the Book of Common Prayer. Last week, we dove into the centuries-long history of the Anglican Church and how the BCP was created out of a need to unite a very theologically diverse church without the strict hierarchy of a pope. We then follow the events that shaped the BCP's development through the centuries, since its first version in 1549, all the way to the 1979 prayer book that we have here in our pews. In this episode, we will explore the overall structure and contents of the 1979 BCP and cover where all those sections belong in our worship life. It will be helpful to have a BCP handy to follow along during this episode, But if you're listening while doing something else, I will do my best to be descriptive, and I will list page numbers in the episode notes for you to visit at your convenience. We'll begin our tour of the 1979 prayer book in the Table of Contents. The table is divided into smaller sections, most of which contain bold headers describing what can be found in them. The first section of the Table of Contents is the sole exception. It lists four items that serve more as preambles to the BCP uh, or as tools to help the reader orient themselves while using the book. The first item we will be looking at is titled Concerning the Service of the Church, which can be found on page 13. In this section, we find a summary of the philosophy that guides Episcopal worship. It is both a description for what one will find during an Episcopal service, and it describes what is expected from everyone involved, from the bishop to the laity. The next item of interest is the calendar of the church year, which can be found on page 15. This section contains a description of the liturgical calendar that we observe, which is itself divided into two cycles of feasts and holy days one depending on the movable date of Easter Day, and the other on the fixed date of December 25th, Christmas Day. That is to say, observances dependent on Easter Day will shift according to the date on which Easter falls and can be identified by counting the number of weeks before or since Easter Day. Observances that are dependent on the Christmas Day cycle tend to have a fixed date, but if they happen to conflict with the Easter cycle in their designated date, they contain alternate dates for celebration next to them in the months of March and April to help make those adjustments. The feasts and celebrations observed throughout the liturgical calendar may have special colleagues or prayers to be said during worship on that date, or they may even have entire liturgies devoted to them. We'll get to those later. Checking the calendar often falls on the celebrant of these services, and there's no penalty for missing a feast or a holy day in our personal daily prayer, or during a casual prayer gathering. For those who, like me, 
are fascinated by the observances of the church year, there are online resources that make following the church calendar much, much easier, such as the lectionarypage.net or the Mission St. Clair app. You may find links for these in the description. Moving on to the next section of the Table of Contents, we find the Daily Office. We will discuss in depth how to use the Daily Office rubric in a future episode of this podcast, so today's description will be less of a tutorial and more of an overview. Within the Daily Office, we have a write-worn version of morning and evening prayer. As mentioned in last episode, Rite One is a relatively faithful recreation of the 1928 BCP's liturgies, complete with plenty of these and thous for those who prefer to worship in that style. The Rite Two liturgies, that is, the ones with the modern English, don't only include morning and evening prayer, but also noonday prayer and Compline two shorter offices adapted from the Liturgy of the Hours from both the Roman Catholic Breviary and Eastern Orthodox Monastic Offices. The Daily Office section also contains the daily devotions for families and individuals, which are shortened versions of all the Daily Offices and follow the same basic structure but are much more stripped down, starting on page 137. The section concludes with a set of additional directions which offer alternative directions on how to adapt the daily office liturgies for different circumstances, such as if there is a choir singing parts of the daily office or if a communion service is to follow. Finally, on page 145, there is a table of suggested canticles at morning and evening prayer, which can be said or sung after the scripture readings in these services. While it is fine to choose any of the canticles found in text at both of these respective offices when praying, the table helps introduce a rhythm that ensures all canticles are used regularly. Next we have the Great Litany. Derived from the Greek word for supplication, the Litany is a prayer of petitions that can be either sung or said at certain points of the daily office or Holy Eucharist liturgies during times of great need, like a national crisis or a war, or during penitential seasons like Lent, or any time where a theme of our dependence on God is being emphasized in the worship service. Next are the Collects of the Church here, which are printed both in their traditional Rite 1 language as well as the contemporary Rite 2 language. These colleagues are assigned for worship services and daily office for specific days and seasons. There are colleagues for the weeks in Advent or Lent, or the season after Pentecost. There are also colleagues for other occasions that usually take precedence over the assigned colleague for that day, like feasts and holy days, such as the Feast of a Saint or Ash Wednesday, or there are also colleagues written for specific occasions, like a baptism or confirmation, or the anniversary of a parish, that can be used when applicable. Next are the proper liturgies for special days. These are the specific holy days which will include either dedicated portions or entire worship services for their observance, like Ash Wednesday and the Passion Week services. 
While the liturgies of these days are still recognizable in their structure, they often contain specific actions, prayers, and movements that set them apart and serve to reenact the occasion that they are celebrating. For example, the Ash Wednesday liturgy contains the imposition of the ashes, which is a symbolic gesture that reminds us that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. The Maundy Thursday liturgy similarly contains the foot washing, which is done in remembrance of Jesus' act of service towards his disciples on the night he was betrayed. The next section is another single item, the Holy Baptism. Aside from being the order for a baptism service, this section is where the BCP shifts from a rhythmic outline of the church's worship and prayer throughout the church year and into more specific liturgies that reveal the heart and soul of that worship. Baptism can be thought of as the introduction into the Christian life. We baptize infants and new believers into the risen life of Christ by proclaiming the renunciations and the baptismal vows, and we once again act out with specific movements to reflect outwardly the inward spiritual reality of new birth. After the liturgy of the baptism, we find the liturgy for the Holy Eucharist. We will take a more in-depth look at this liturgy next week's episode, when we will be looking at all of its parts and their significance, and why they take the shape that they take. But for today, we will stick to doing an overview, just like we did for the daily office. And similar to the daily office, in this section we find Rite 1 and Rite 2 variants, with the Rite 2 section containing far more resources and options for the celebrant to choose from. This also contains a set of additional directions giving instructions on how to celebrate the Eucharist under special circumstances or in non-traditional settings. The next section continues with the theme of the common life of the Church with other noteworthy occasions in the development of most Christians. These, called the pastoral offices, are much more reliant on a pastoral relationship between the celebrant and those who are taking part in the service. The first one, Confirmation, is done by one's bishop, and it serves as a punctuation for one's baptism. That is not to suggest that baptism is incomplete or insufficient as a sacrament, but for a variety of reasons, whether one was baptized as an infant, or whether one has grown and matured since being baptized, confirmation is an opportunity to reaffirm the baptismal vows in our own mature voice, and the bishop's laying of, of hands carries with it the apostolic succession, that is, the belief that we can trace our lineage through the chain of laying on of hands all the way back to the original apostles in the time of Jesus. This echoes the way baptism introduces us to the Christian life by reminding us that we are part of the universal church that spans throughout the centuries and throughout the world. The following items in this section all contain similarly powerful Christian imagery and ceremonies for other aspects of our church life, including commitments to Christian service, marriages, thanksgiving for the birth or adoption of children, reconciliation of the penitent, ministrations to the sick, and at the time of death. 
Those last three items I just mentioned are able to be celebrated by a layperson where a priest is not available. Due to the nature of when repentance or ministration may be needed, it is important that these can be offered in a timely manner, and it affirms our belief in the priesthood of all believers. That is, that every Christian is a representative of Christ, whether or not we're specifically called to the position of priest. Next, in the pastoral offices, there are right one and right two variants of the burial of the dead, as well as directions for special circumstances in non-traditional settings. Bookending the services, we find the Episcopal services, those which only a bishop may celebrate. These include the ordination of a bishop, a priest, or a deacon, the celebration of a new ministry, or the consecration of a church or chapel building. The remaining sections of the Book of Common Prayer can be thought of as a library of resources for our formation and development. The Psalter contains arrangements of all 150 psalms that are metered for responsive recitation, chanting, or singing, making them easier to read during worship than if they were read directly from a Bible. The prayers and thanksgiving starting on page 810 are there for our reference and are meant to help give us words to pray in specific occasions when we might not have the words to express what we want to say spontaneously. Next, the outline of the faith, or catechism, on page 846 is a primer of the faith in a question-and-answer format that is basically the church's frequently asked questions section. While the answers contained in this section are not exhaustive by any means, they do help provide a starting point for those who might be interested in researching a topic or pursuing deeper knowledge of something that they may not be familiar with. The historical documents of the church on page 864 are a collection of documents that are relevant to the worship or history of the Episcopal Church, but are not used during worship. These include the prefaces of previous versions of the BCP, the 39 Articles of Religion, which, as we mentioned in last episode, are the outline of what Anglicans generally believe about certain theological issues. In here we can also find the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral, a statement adopted by the Episcopal Church in 1886 which outlines the four principles that unite us with Christians from other denominations and that must exist in some shape or form in order to affirm that we share the same faith. On page 880, there is a table to find the dates for Easter for every year up to 2089, and it also contains the formula to calculate the date in the years beyond that. I'm not going to explain that formula here because this is not a math podcast, but if you can turn to that section and do the calculations for yourself, if you're just burning to know when Easter will fall in the 22nd century. The last two sections are the lectionaries, the one for the public reading of scripture on Sunday morning services, and the daily office lectionary. 
The lectionary for use in the public reading of scripture follows a three-year cycle, years A, B, and C, and it restarts on the advent of every year that is divisible by three. Again, I'm sorry about making you do math on this podcast. I'll just tell you the answer now that we are currently in year A. The daily office lectionary, as the name suggests, is designed for daily reading, so it follows a two-year cycle, years one and two, and we're currently on year two. We'll cover in more detail how this lectionary works in the future episode when we discuss the daily office. Now that we have reached the end of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, I hope that what might have once felt like an intimidating book now feels a little more familiar. Going through the services and the contents of the BCP reveals how much thought was put into organizing a literal lifetime's worth of worship into a single and compact document. And while you may never find yourself needing to plan or celebrate an ordination service, for instance, Having access to it helps us see how it fits into a larger pattern of our common church life.